How are you doing in real life? That, that was a lot better. I asked that for first service, and they're like, eh. And I yelled at them, and then they started cheering, so it was great. Anyway, hey, I'm glad to be with you. First and foremost, we have the honor and the privilege of joining Pullman this morning. So let's give a shout out to Pullman. Glad to be with you. If you don't know, we are one church with two campuses. So we have one here in Moscow, one in Pullman. And we have the privilege of being with them today. And they get stuck with me. Sorry. Also, uh, before we move on, I want to give a shout out to all the graduating high schoolers. And let's give them a hand. Yeah. There was both Moscow and Pullman graduations this weekend, and I, I want just to convey one of my soapboxes. Uh, we often tr- tell students that they, they need to have fun now, they need to do things now, because when they become an adult, oh, and I just want to say that's a lie. Like, I wouldn't, I don't want to go back to high school. My life now is just so much better, and I love what God has been able to do in me, and just the things that we've been able to do as a family. So... Uh, your life is just starting and it's just looking up and you got years ahead of you of what God wants to do with your life. So congratulations. We're proud of you. Thank you so much. All right. We are, last week, we talked about these two stories. We looked at Joseph being sold and we looked at this random story of Judah and Tamar. And one of the main lessons we talked about last week is how we often objectify and dehumanize people to get what we want. And what I want to do this week is we're going to pick up with a person of Joseph. And instead of talking about how we often objectify and dehumanize people, what happens when we are the person who is being objectified and dehumanized? How are we to engage the story? And that's what we're going to look at this week. But before we get into this week's passage, I want us to stop and consider what it would be like to be Joseph And honestly, put yourself in his position. What do you feel? What are your questions? What are the things that you know and you don't know? What what emotions are stirring within you? Imagine what it would be like to be in the cistern, to hear the conversation that your own brothers are having about whether or not they should kill you or sell you as a slave. How are you feeling? I would imagine it's this concophony of anger and rage and bitterness and depression and agony. What, what type of prayers are you praying as they pull you out of the cistern and they hand you into the hands of these foreigners that you don't know? And they tie your, they tie your wrists behind a camel and they start taking you away to God knows where. What are you feeling And day after day, you're on journey, further and further away from home with people that are strangers to you, and you're just an object to them. We often, when we read these stories in the Bible, we kind of breeze through them, forgetting what the the underlying emotion and the ambiguity that's just below the surface. We need to put ourselves into these stories to fully experience what is happening And so we pick up with Joseph being sold as a slave to the Ishmaelites. And the Ishmaelites are going to bring him towards Egypt. And like I said, before we go into this week's text, we need to realize that the the verses we read this week are not just a quick couple months. They are 13 years of events and trauma and exploitation, unanswered prayers. 13 years of suffering 
So as we go through this week's passage, make sure we keep that emotional weight there. That this is not pretty. While there's a lot of hope and things happen and good things happen in these stories, there's also years of nothing happening. So let's jump into this week's passage, Genesis 39. Now Joseph had been brought to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites, who had brought him home, brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. We know this story, so we've already trained ourselves to be used to it. But this is an unexpected statement. Joseph is a slave. This is not a good work relationship. This is not something you succeed in. When you're a slave, you're a slave and you're always a slave and you do slave things and you're always treated as a slave. Like he's not, you know, him and Potiphar aren't cracking a cold one on their breaks. This isn't a good buddy-buddy relationship. He's still a slave and he's treated as a slave. So in the midst of this type of circumstance, the fact that somehow Joseph becomes successful, we should be going, wait, what, how? How does that happen? How does a slave become successful? And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. This word hands, yod in the Hebrew, is going to show up multiple times through this story. In fact, it's sh- the, one of the first times it shows up in connection with Joseph goes back two chapters when his brothers seized them, him in h- their hands and they take his garment away and throw him in a cistern and then they sell him into the hands of the Ishmaelites. The, the word hands here in the Hebrew has this idea of what we do with our control and our power, how we manipulate our surroundings and our people. What we do with our hands is a is is of incredible importance. It doesn't just literally mean hands. And this story is going to talk a lot about hands and how people use their hands to engage the story and to engage other people. And what we find with Joseph is that what he does with his hands, he's successful with. He's trusted with. His master, his master, not his boss, his master sees that everything Joseph does with his hands is good and succeeds. So his master trusts more and more in him. Now there's this question, there's this question that we should wrestle with. Is Joseph successful because God blesses him or does God bless him because he's successful with what he does? And I would like to suggest it's both. It's both. Because Joseph refuses to be limited by his circumstances, because Joseph, everything he touches, he's going to do well with. Because Joseph, every time he has a chance, he's going to bless others, including his master, those above him who are oppressing him. He's going to bless them. Because of that, God says, I'm going to bless that. I can work with that. His master saw that the Lord was with him. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time he that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now, if you were to take this lesson and just kind of apply it to you, I'm curious if as an employee, is this the way you work? Is this the type of person your boss sees? Or, hey, kids, you're not off the hook. What about your parents? Do they see you this way? 
Like if you're always complaining about responsibilities and not getting, you know, getting to do things, it's because the way you're engaging the story. If you're a parent, you can, you know, elbow your kid. Like is this, is this the way you engage with what you have the opportunity to do? Are you always seeking to do well, to be faithful, and to bless others? Because if you do that, people notice. It stands out in our culture. I often tell my teenagers, if you want to get a promotion in your job, show up on time, work hard, and smile, and you'll be better than 90% of the people that are there. And it's true. (laughs) Show up on time, work hard, smile. And this is what Joseph does, but put yourself in Joseph's shoes again. He's a slave. Like, he's not promised a promotion. He has no rights. Like, he can't complain about wages. He has every reason to whine and to complain and to feel like the victim, but he doesn't do that. See, in Joseph, we see the tenacity of Jacob because these verses sound a lot like Jacob when he worked for Laban. When Jacob was under Laban's household, everything Jacob did blessed Laban. But we also see something different from from Joseph to Jacob. Jacob was always conniving and manipulating, trying to get what he wants, what he deserved. And we don't see that with Joseph. It's like we see the tenacity of Jacob with the faithfulness and the peacefulness of Abraham. And now what we see throughout this, well, let's keep moving. I'm getting ahead of myself. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. He was the Nike model. He was, the, he was the Abercrombie and Fitch model. Like when you walk by, he has a shirt and he's polished and there's like this cologne wafting off of him. It just emits from his pores, you know? Like he was that. Now, we know what this is setting up, but stop for a moment and recall that this is exactly the way Joseph's mom was described. The exact same way. So already in, in the first few verses of chapter 39, we have two references to two Old Testament characters, his dad, Jacob, and his mom, Rachel. And I'm convinced as we keep reading, you will see more and more references and allusions to Old Testament characters because what we often do with Joseph's story is that we isolate it. It's just Joseph's story. But that's not the case. Joseph's story is the needle on a long thread that has been being woven throughout Genesis. Joseph somehow becomes the conclusion, the resolution that the narrative of Genesis has been working on. There's something about this person, Joseph, that God is going to use to somehow start bringing healing, not just to this family, because as we've seen, this family's messed up, but also to the world. So we need to pay close attention to this character of Joseph. So he was good looking. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. Um, it's not a good way. Like, that's not a good pickup line. Uh, but he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Not Pharaoh, or the, sorry, not Potiphar, but God. And so we get another glimpse into this person of Joseph. Now, he is a slave. He could, hypothetically, have said, because he's a slave, that he had to do what Potiphar's wife said. Like, he could have. And, and I would not be surprised that this was a common occurrence. 
because slaves were often mistreated. You didn't buy slaves just to do physical work. Like there were things that happened to them that are brutal and ugly and sick. And, and we often assume or we don't think about it. I'm sure Joseph was exposed and victimized in many of the same ways. He could have. He could have in this situation said, I had no choice. Your wife told me to. But he knows for some reason that he has a calling from God that he can't do it. That if he does do this, it will somehow jeopardize his own identity as well as the calling that God has placed on not just him, but on his family. He can't do it. So we keep going. As she spoke to Joseph, day after day, he would not listen to her. So he didn't just say no once. He kept saying no. To lie beside her, to be with her. But one day, when he went to the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house. By the way, if you notice, the house shows up a lot. The word house. We'll come back to that. She caught him by his garment, saying, lie with me. She's a woman of many words. (laughs) But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. Now, a lot of preachers make a lot of this point, and it's a good point. Like, he flees from temptation, which you should. You should do that. But more importantly, we should, we should notice something. This is the second time someone has grabbed his garment and taken it from him. It's going to show up three times in his life. The first time is with his, you know, the technicolored coat of colors or whatever Aaron called it. That, that was the first time someone took his garment. First time garment shows up. This time is a different garment. In fact, the three times it shows up, it's a different word every time. This time someone else takes his garment. But he left his garment in her hand, her yod, and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. It's the word Isaac. Itzak. Once again, Joseph's story is not just about him. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. So this, this is the second time someone has taken his garment and the second time someone has used his garment to construct a false narrative, to protect themselves and to objectify him. And she told him, saying the same story, saying, the Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into prison. There's no listening to Joseph here. The master doesn't ask Joseph for his side of the story. And I don't fully blame him. Like, if you told me one of my employees did this to my wife, I'd make they're dead like that, hypothetically. Um, But you get the point, right? Like, there's no, like, I don't blame necessarily the master here, but put yourself in Joseph's shoes. Yet again, he is victimized. Yet again, his voice isn't heard. And he falls prey yet again to someone else. 
And so he's put into prison. It's not just any prison, by the way. The text tells you the place where the king's prisoners were confined. This is, this is supermax. This is the worst of the worst. This is where you put people to make an example of them. And so what we see in Joseph, if you go back and, and tr- uh, plot out his trajectory, he is the favorite in a household. And then someone in that household objectifies him and takes advantage and they get rid of him. And now he's in a pit and he's in the low of lows. And then he's in a new household. He rises to favoritism again. He's the second highest again. And yet again, someone in that household takes advantage of him, stabs him in the back. And yet again, he's now even in a worse place. And this isn't like our prisons today. They had no rights. They didn't have like workout benches and TVs and like they weren't guaranteed a certain amount of calories per day. Like it's like moldy bread, if that, and here's some water and we think it's kind of clean. At best. And he's in that situation now. He spent years in Potiphar's house doing nothing but good for his master. And this is where he ends up. And he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. It's a beautiful verse, and I don't want to take that away. But there's a lesson we need to learn from this. Do you think, do you think, I said think, it's feel and think at the same time. Do you think that Joseph actually felt this? Do you think that when he looked at his situations, his circumstances, as he sat chained to his wall with the bars in front of him and the rats running over his feet, do you think that this is what he felt? Maybe. God's steadfast love for your life won't always change your circumstances, but it can empower you to get through them. Showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. The keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in prison. What? (laughs) Like, this may have happened a couple times in history. I'm sure there's some weird story, but what? Okay, okay, so hold on. As a slave, you could see how hypothetical, like you could see how maybe a slave could work really hard, is always faithful, is always diligent. And you can see how a master says, hey, that slave's doing a good job. I'm going to put him in charge of other slaves. And hey, that slave's doing a really good job. I'm going to put him in charge of not just the slaves, but of my house. He's going to become my assistant. And you can see how hypothetically, as he does a good job with that, you put him in charge of everything and you're just going to eat food and kind of, you know, enjoy life. You can see how that might work. But what about a prisoner? What opportunities does he have to prove himself? Not much. So what does this look like? This doesn't happen like that. Like there's days and weeks of Joseph scrubbing his floor with his toothbrush really well, making sure everything's polished. There are days and weeks of him taking care of people and doing his best to listen. There's days and weeks of him being the best prisoner he can be. When finally the warden notices him and says, you know what, instead of a toothbrush on the floor, I'm going to let you go press some license plates. And as he does a good job there and as he takes care of people and as he, as he works and works with his hands, as he keeps with that, the warden says, you know what, I'm going to let you go on yard duty. And as he keeps doing that, eventually he gets promoted and promoted to the point that he's running the entire prison. Which, if you're like me or if you're like Jacob, what are you thinking? 
I'm thinking breakout. I'm thinking prison break. <laughs> like, I, I'm going to pull my Michael and figure out how I can get out of this. Like, I'm going to tattoo the plans of the prison. If you don't know what prison break is, I'm sorry. Uh, any fans? Prison break? Yeah, if you, sweet. But you know what I'm talking? Like, you're going to get out of this situation. But he doesn't. He's faithful. And he doesn't, like, he... This is the person of Joseph. The keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge. It's the word hand, in his hands. Paid no attention to it, which, once again, like, if this is prison break, like, this is what you want, baby. Uh, But he doesn't do that because the Lord was with him. Whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Now, once again, we, could, we can idealize this and whitewash it and think it's comfortable. And He's still in prison, and it's not a good prison. This is thousands of years ago when this idea of social justice didn't even exist. Like, this is not a good situation. And you can imagine about this time, it's been years and years and years. You can imagine Joseph feeling the temptation to try, of finally trying to forget trying to not remember what, think about his brothers and think about his dad. You can think that Joseph at this point would try to be getting rid of all those memories and just trying to move on, trying to numb and trying to desensitize himself. And we wouldn't blame him because we do this all the time with our own mistakes and our own trauma. We can't face it. We'd rather do anything but that. Now, it's, it's after this that we get the story of the cupbearer and the baker. So the cupbearer was, uh, he, he bears the cup. That's a creative name. For Pharaoh, uh, he's the guy who tastes all the food. He, makes, he has Pharaoh's ear all the time. He's always in Pharaoh's presence. Like, that's, that's who he is. And then you have the baker. Who doesn't love a baker? I mean, pastries, right? Carbohydrates, great stuff. Uh, but they do something, they get in trouble, Pharaoh sends them to prison. And while they're in prison, they both have a dream, different dreams. When they wake up, they don't know what the dream means, and they have no one to tell them what the dream means. And this is, this is where we get another glimpse into the person of Joseph. Joseph is walking by, and he sees that their faces are downcast. One, he, he sees them and he notices. He, he doesn't have to. He's in the pit with them. He doesn't have to do that. But he notices, and then he asks him what's going on, and he does something about it. Because this is who Joseph is. Now, I don't want to get into the interpretations of the dreams, but I do want to read the interpretation he gives to the cupbearer. But I'm not interested in the interpretation itself. I'm interested in what Joseph says at the end. So let's jump into this. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly, when you were his his cupbearer. Now, he tells them the interpretation, and now... He's going to make a request. 
And now he's going he's gonna to try to use the situation to benefit himself, but, which sounds like Jacob. But notice, what, notice the way he says it. Like if you were Jacob in the situation, you would say something like, I'll interpret it for you only if you do this for me. And you make a vow and like, there would be a blood and goat sacrifice just to make sure that like, you stick with this. But he doesn't do that. He gives the interpretation and then notice what he says. Only remember me. Don't move on and forget me when it, was, when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh. That's all he's asking. And so get me out of this house. Notice he calls prison house. The word house is yet again one of these words that shows up with the, through this story. Because Joseph started in one house and his family betrayed him. Then he goes to another house and that family betrays him. And now he's in another house with another father figure, number three. And he wants out. And notice what he says next. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they, he doesn't refer to Potiphar, he's referring to them, that they should put me into the pit. And he's talking about the cistern that his brothers first threw him into. See, he's back in the same situation. He knows that this entire course of events was set in motion because of this one traumatic abuse. He knows he's here because of that still. And he makes this request to the cupbearer, please just don't forget me. So when we get to the end of chapter 40, it says this about the cupbearer. Yet the chief cupbearer, when he ascended to Pharaoh, did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Yet again, someone forgot. The one person who could have done something for him forgot. So as we enter into chapter 41, we ha- we're told about this lo- these set of dreams that Pharaoh has. He has two dreams. And we're not going to get into those this week, but they're just quick review. There's two, he has two dreams. Uh, one is about the stalks of wheat, one that is fat and beautiful, another one that is thin and ugly. And the thin and ugly eats the fat and beautiful ones. Weird cannibalism going on. It gets even more fun. And then there's these fat and beautiful cows, seven of them. And then there's these seven thin and ugly cows that eat the fat ones. And you can imagine Pharaoh waking up going, what did I eat last night? <laughs> so Pharaoh's trying to figure out what, the, what happened, like what's going on with these. And no one can interpret them. No one can. And the cupbearer, I'm sure, is like watching this whole thing, holding the Pharaoh's cup, like, oh, hey, you want some more wine? Cool. And he's like, oh, hey. Yeah, there's this one dude named Joseph. You, uh, he interpreted my dream and it was right. Do you want me, should we get him? And Pharaoh's like, yeah, bring him up. So imagine the scene. Pharaoh, uh, Joseph comes, he arrives, he's before Pharaoh. What does Joseph look like? Skinny. I doubt he's taking a shower every day. I doubt he's been fed well and I doubt he's been clothed well. He probably stinks. You could see the dirt and the grime on his face. You could tell he didn't brush his hair right before he came in. So Pharaoh tells him his dream, and Joseph gives the interpretation freely. In fact, nowhere in the interpretation does Joseph ever say, because I've given this to you, will you please just get me out of prison? He doesn't say that at all. After he gives the interpretation, Joseph gives his advice. This is what I think you should do. Go find a wise and discerning man 
who can uh, manage all this wealth of all the grain that's going to be produced over this next seven years, store it up. That way, after the seven years of plentiful has come, the next seven years of famine, you have enough to survive. And then, and then he's done. And we pick it up from here. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this, in whom the Spirit of God is the Spirit of God? So there's this dirty, stinky, skinny, starving prisoner that's before Pharaoh, king of all Egypt. And the way Pharaoh describes him is that the Spirit of God is on him. What is it that he sees? Sure, he interpreted a dream, but there's more than that. There has to be more than that. Because, yeah. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand, put it on Joseph's hand, and clothed him in garments of fine linen. The first person in this entire story, other than Joseph's dad, to give him a garment. Two times he had a garment taken away from him, and this is the first time someone gave it back. What you will notice is that Pharaoh is setting himself up as Joseph's dad. He gives him a ring, gives him gold chains. Gives him a a garment of fine linen. He's going to change his name. He's going to give him a wife. It's the first person in the story to actually listen to Joseph finally. Like, he is setting himself up as Pharaoh, as Joseph's dad. You can imagine, if you're in Joseph's shoes, and you've gone through 13 years of servitude and abuse and objectification, you can imagine the feeling, the longing to finally move on and forget everything of the past and just to settle just to accept your new life and go about, and who would blame him? We'll come back to that. A gold chain around his neck, and he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, bow the knee. His, his, his dreams that he had 13 years ago are starting to come true. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Which, if you're over all the land of Egypt, and you had this family way back that, that objectified and forgotten you, and this dad that you longed for, but you don't know what happened to him, why wouldn't you go back home? And he doesn't. Like, you're, you're the second command of all of Egypt. You can, you can send a party, if you want, of hundreds of people and commanders and stuff and horses and chariots. But he doesn't. And Pharaoh called, next one, Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphonath-Pananiah. Now, we don't fully know what this means, and there's a big debate among scholars what this means, but it deals with secrets and mysteries. He gives him an Egyptian name, and then he gives him an Egyptian wife. He gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, which sounds a lot like Potiphar. And there's plenty of commentaries that have been written about this, if it's the same person or not. Generally, they assume it's not. But what they do agree is that this is a literary device that the writer puts in here to let you know that everything that's been taken away from Joseph by anyone in the past has been given back to him, and then some. Potiphar, priest of On, an Egyptian god. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. 
Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. 13 years of him remaining faithful and diligent, being successful with his hands and everything he's given, he does well with, and he blesses people. And yet three times in the story, well, twice he was objectified and victimized. One time he was just flat out forgotten. And he keeps with it. 13 years of steadfastness. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until it ceased to measure it. He's still being faithful in blessing others. And God is saying, I'm going to work with that. For it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, which you instantly think of Jacob and Esau. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. Now, this is his behor. So whatever he names his first child, like we need to pay attention to his name. What does his name mean? For, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship, that sounds good, and all my father's house. We get this hint that Joseph is trying to forget who he is. We get this hint, now that things are finally going well, he's trying to forget his story. That now that he's finally here, he's going to move on and he's going to leave his family behind and this is going to be his family now. Which, in my opinion, this is exactly what Pharaoh should have done. He's doing everything right in this story. But with this, when, when Joseph forgets his story, he forgets his calling as well. He forgets his identity what God called him to do. And then the name of his second son, he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. See, Joseph is wrestling with who is his dad. Who, who defines who Joseph is? Is it Jacob? Is it Potiphar? Is it the warden? Or is it Pharaoh? And he's been wrestling with that for 13 years through abuse and scandal and lies and deception and manipulation. And he, he has been innocent through it all. Do you blame him? Like if this is all he's wrestling with, then he, I, he, he's like a superhero. Like if this is the only question that he's wrestling with, then I, I'm amazed. But he keeps... But it's at this moment where the story ends. Chapter 41 concludes, and we're like, no. No, it's, first it's too clean and resolved. And it's also like this tragic underside of his family's gone. What, What about Jacob? What about the dad that doesn't know what happened to his son? That's in mourning for 13 years. What about his brothers? What happened to them? Like, did they ever fess up? Were they ever caught? Did they ever finally regret what they did? And the story kind of ends here, seemingly resolved, seemingly like Joseph has moved on. And what we're going to see next week is that he, he not only didn't move on, but God won't let him move on. Because the cistern has always been part of his story. The lessons he learned in the pit will define who he is and what he does and how ultimately Joseph will save the world. You can't forget 
your story. Now, I'm already going long, so we need to move towards communion. So if you're serving communion, would you go ahead and head back? And as we head towards communion, if you're new with us, we want, like, we want you to know that we have an open table. And what that means is if, you're, if you want to celebrate the Lord's burial, death, death, burial, and resurrection, you are more than welcome to. You are family. We ask that you would hold on to the elements until the very end. That way we can wrestle with some implications of this sermon. So implication number one, God is ever present and ever working in your life, no matter the circumstances. And he invites us to endure in this truth. It's easy to acknowledge this, to accept it, to even believe in it, but to endure in it is what God ultimately calls us to do. When you faced your darkest nights, your loudest silence, and your greatest pain, will you endure in the hope that God is not done yet? We often want the quick fix. We want the pain just to be gone now. We want the success to come instantly. We want to rise above our circumstances now. But it never works that way. It's through years of endurance. And this is what God calls us to. Will you trust that God is working even in the ugliness of your life? Second implication. Everyone will experience their own cisterns. And it is not our place to define and to look down on them or to assume that this is the limit of their story. They may have made some serious, big, knuckle-headed mistakes to get down there. But it is our, not our job to assume that they should be down there or to keep them down there or to cast judgments upon them because they're down there. We don't know the fullness of their story. We don't know what they've been through. We don't know the, the pain and the agony and the unanswered questions. We don't know what father figures they've had. We, we don't know. And we, we like to pretend we do. We like to look at them and just assume we know the whole story and to assume this is all that they're ever going to amount to be. But they could be Joseph just as much where they are down there because of other people. It is not our job to assume or to judge. Our third implication. Defiantly refuse to allow the circumstances of your life to imprison you. And this is what we see in Joseph. Though he was a slave, he refused to act like a slave. And though he was a prisoner, he refused to act like a prisoner. He defiantly rose above his circumstances. And the things he did with his hands, the way he engaged his story allowed him to rise above it. This applies to you if you're in that type of state, but it also applies to you if you're in the success of your life. If you allow your successes to define you, it will imprison you. You cannot allow things in life that can be taken away to define you because it will wreck you one day. In fact, I'm convinced, because it's true in my life, the things that I try to hold on to so dearly define my identity and security, and God, out of his steadfast love, said no, no more. And it sucked. And this goes to our last implication. If you're at rock bottom, and this is a two-parter, if you're at rock bottom, bless others with the work of your hands. And I know 
everything in us just, we want to heal, we want to recover, and I get that. But there's other people with you. There's other people down there. Bless them. And yes, there's people above you sometimes who are completely unaware of what you're going through. Bless them as well, and they will see God. And just as important, accept the help of others. It's easy to take this type of message and to spin it as if we're saying that if you're in a bad, ugly situation, just stay there and stay faithful and don't say anything. That is not what we're saying. If you're in a situation that you should not be in, get help now. Tell someone, talk to someone, get help and get out now. Do not leave this service until you've talked to someone. Do it I want to say now again, but then we start thinking about that stupid commercial we made. But I'm serious. Now, get help. Talk to someone. Don't, don't be imprisoned any longer. Rise above your circumstances. You are not to be victimized. That is not who you are. You are loved and cherished and for so much more in this life. Get help. If, however, you are out of your cistern, do the same. Bless others with the work of your hands. Do not, do not grow calloused and cut off and numb to those who are going through the pit right now. Don't do it. Provide an opportunities for others to escape their prisons. And it might be a simple phone call saying, hey, I saw him treat you that way. Um, something going on, can we, can we help? Just want, I just want you to know anytime you need to talk, we're here. It might be something like that. It might be someone who's homeless and they've had a rough go. And you say, you know what, I don't have a lot, but I got this little job you can do for me. And if you want to do it every day, I'll make sure you're taken care of. It might be a single mom who's facing not being able to pay her rent, and you say you can move into my basement. Provide opportunities, not just handouts to people. Handouts are easy. I can write a check and be done and feel like I've done my moral obligation, but provide opportunities to people. And as we come to the table, we're reminded of another Joseph who was betrayed, taken advantage of, had his own garment stripped from him, did nothing to deserve this. He was laid in a pit himself, but rose above it and calls us to bear our own crosses. And so we remember Jesus on the night that he was betrayed. He took the bread and he broke it, saying, take and eat, this is my body. Whenever we eat this, remember. So let's remember. Then he took the cup, saying, this is, the blood of my co- this is my blood of the covenant. And whenever we drink this, we remember that covenant. So let's remember. Father, I want to thank you for Joseph's story. It's not just a story of happy, of happy endings, but it's a story of tragic beginnings, tragic lows, interruptions that no one saw coming, heartache, Silence and pain, loneliness, being forgotten. But through it all, we see that you are always working through the person of Joseph and around him. As he struggles with his family and who he is and who he calls dad, 
it's obvious that you were there from the beginning and you were there at the end and you were there through the middle and you invite him to trust into you. May we do the same this morning. May we remember that our identity does not come from the things around us, but from a God who desperately loves us, a Father who is good, who wishes to lift us up so that we may bless others. We pray these things in your name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Real Life. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church, and how you can get involved, connect with us on Facebook and Twitter and visit our website, liferotp.com.